Reuben Sachs, A Sketch, by Amy Levi. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reuben Sachs, by Amy Levi, read by Adrian Pretzelis. Chapter 13 We did not dream in my heart— and yet with what a pang we woke at last. A. Mary F. Robinson Rose, with a candle in her hand, stood at the top of the stairs and yawned. It was half-past three. The last waltz had been waltzed, the last light extinguished, the last carriage had rolled away. Bertie, on his road to Albert Hall Mansions, was dreaming dreams and Reuben, as he tossed on his sleepless bed, pondering plans for the coming conquest, was disagreeably haunted by the recollection of some white chrysanthemums which he had let fall, on purpose. "'It has been a great success,' said Judith, passing by her cousin and going towards her own room. Rose followed her, and, sitting down on the bed, began drawing out the pins from her elaborately dressed hair. "'Yes, I think it went off all right.' Caroline Cardozo stuck now and then, and no one would dance with poor Alec, so I had to take him round myself. Judith laughed. She had danced straight through the programme, had eaten supper, had talked gaily in the intervals of dancing. Rose got up from the bed and went over to Judith. Please unfasten my bodice. I have sent Marie to bed. Then, as Judith complied, what was Reuben telling Adelaide? And why did he make off so soon? Mr. Ronaldson, the member for St. Baldwin's, is dead. A man came and shouted the news down the street. Her voice was quite steady. What a ghoul Reuben is! He has been waiting to step into that dead man's shoes this last month and more. Reuben Sachs, M.P., my brother, the member for St. Baldwin's. A man told me in the house last night— my son cannot get away while Parliament is sitting. The whole family will be quite unbearable." Judith bent her head over an obstinate knot in the silk dress-lace. "'He's not elected yet,' she said. Rose, her bodice unfastened, sprang round and faced her cousin. "'Reuben is as hard as nails,' she cried, with apparent inconsequence. "'Under all that good nature he is as hard as nails.' "'Undo my frock, please,' said Judith, yawning with assumed sleepiness. "'It must be nearly four o'clock.' Rose's capable fingers moved quickly in and out the lace. As she drew the tag from the last hole, she said, "'Well, Judith, when are we to congratulate you?' Judith did not affect to misunderstand the illusion. Bertie's open devotion had acted as a buffer between her and her smarting pride. "'Poor little person!' she said, and smiled. "'You might do worse,' said Rose, gathering herself up for departure. The mask fell off from Judith's face as the door closed on her cousin. She stood there, stiff and cold, in the middle of the room, her hands hanging loosely at her side. Rose put her head in at the door. "'Do you know what Jack says?' she began, then stopped suddenly. "'Judith, don't look like that. It is no good.' "'No,' said Judith, lifting her eyes. "'It is no good.' Then she went over to the door and shut it. 
She sat down on the edge of her little white bed, supporting one knee with a smooth, solid arm, while she stared into vacancy. Nothing had happened, nothing. Yet henceforward life would wear a different face for her, and she knew it. It was impossible any longer to deceive herself. Her wide, vacant eyes saw nothing, but her mental vision, grown suddenly acute, was confronted by a thronging array of images. Yes, she was beginning to see it all now, dimly and slowly indeed at first, but with ever-increasing clearness as she gazed, to see how it had all been from the beginning, how slowly and surely this thing had grown about her life, how in the night a silent foe had undermined the citadel. She had been caught, snared in a fine strong net of woven hair, this young, strong creature. Her strength mocked her in the clinging, subtle toils. She got up from the bed slowly, stiffly, and stood again upright in the middle of the room. Forced into a position alien to her whole nature, to the very essence of her decorous, law-abiding soul, it was impossible that she should not seek to strike a blow on her own behalf. "'It is no good,' Rose had said, and she had echoed the words. She did not want to put her thoughts into words, but her heart cried out in sudden rebellion. Why was it no good? She went over mentally almost every incident in her intercourse with Reuben, saw how from day to day, from month to month, from year to year they had been drawn closer together in ever-strengthening, ever-tightening bonds. She remembered his voice, his eyes, his face, his near face— as she had heard and seen them a few short hours ago. The conventions, the disguises which she had been taught to regard as the only realities, fell down suddenly before the living reality of this thing which had grown up between her and Reuben. She recognized in it a living creature, wonderful, mysterious, beautiful, and strong, with all the rights of its existence. It was impossible that they who had given it breath should do violence to it, should stain their hands with its blood. It was impossible. She stood there still, her head lifted up, glowing with a strange exultation as her pride reasserted itself. Opposite was a mirror, a three-sided toilet mirror, hung against the wall, and suddenly Judith caught sight of her own reflected face, with its wild eyes and flushed cheeks. Her face, which was usually so calm. Calm? Had she ever been calm, save for the false calmness which narcotic drugs bestow? She was frightened of herself, of her own daring, of the wild, strange thoughts and feelings which struggled for mastery within her. There was nothing more terrible more tragic than this ignorance of a woman of her own nature, her own possibilities, her own passions. She covered her face with her hands, and in the darkness the thoughts came crowding. Was it thought, or vision, or feeling? The inexorable realities of her world, those realities of which she had so rarely allowed herself to lose sight, came pressing back upon her with renewed insistence that momentary glow of exultation, of self-vindication, faded before the hard daylight which rushed in upon her soul. 
she saw not only how it had all been, but how it would all be to the end. Then once more his low, broken voice was in her ear, his supplicating eyes before her. The music, the breath of dying flowers, assailed once more her senses. She lived over again that near, far-off, wonderful moment. Again Judith dropped her hands to her side. She clenched them in an intolerable agony. She took a few steps and flung herself face forwards on the pillow. Shame, anger, pride—all were swept away in an overwhelming torrent of emotion, in a sudden flood of passion, of longing, of desolation. Baffled, vanquished, she lay there, crushing out the sound of unresisted sobs. From her heart rose only the cry of defeat, Reuben, Reuben, have mercy on me. End of chapter 13 Chapter 14 Man's love is of man's life a thing apart. Tis woman's whole existence. Byron Judith slept far into the morning, the sound deep sleep of exhaustion that sleep of the heavy-hearted, from which, almost by an effort of will, the dreams are banished. The first thing of which she was aware was the sound of Rose's voice, and then of Rose herself standing over her with a plate and a cup of coffee in her hand. Judith raised herself on her elbow. A vague sense of calamity clung to her. Her eyes were heavy with more than the heaviness of sleep. "'It is ten o'clock,' cried Rose. I brought you your breakfast. Rather handsome of me, isn't it?" "'Yes, very,' said Judith, smiling faintly. "'How came I to sleep so late?' It was quite an event in her well-ordered existence. She realized it with a little shock which set her memory in motion. Judith drank her coffee hastily and sprang out of bed. She went through her toilette with even more care and precision than usual. There is nothing more conducive to self-respect than a careful toilette. Nothing had happened. Everything had happened. Judith felt that she had grown older in the night. All day long people came and went and gossiped—gossiped loudly and ceaselessly of last night's party, more cautiously and at intervals of Mr. Ronaldson's death. In the evening Adelaide, Esther, and Mrs. Sachs came in but not Reuben. She knew her sentence. That brief moment of clear vision, of courage, had faded, as we know even as it came. Now she dared not even look back upon it, dared not think at all. Nothing had happened, nothing. She fell back upon the unconsciousness, the unsuspiciousness of her neighbours. For them the world was not changed. How was it possible that great things had taken place? She talked, moved about, and went through all the little offices of her life. Now and then she repeated to herself the formulae on which she had been brought up, which she had always accepted as to the unseriousness, the unreality of the romantic, the sentimental in life. Two or three days went by without any event to mark them. On the fourth, Bertie Lee Harrison paid a call of interminable length, when Judith, with bright eyes and flushed cheeks, talked to him with unusual animation. 
In her heart she was thinking, Reuben will never come again, and what shall I do? But the very next day Reuben came. It was, of course, impossible that he should stay away for any length of time. The Lunningers were at tea in the drawing-room after dinner, when the door was pushed open and he entered, as usual, unannounced. Judith's heart leapt suddenly within her. The misery of the last few days melted like a bad dream. After all, were things any different from what they had always been? Here was Reuben, here was she, face to face, alive, together. He came slowly forwards, his eyelids drooping, an air of almost wooden immobility on his face. The black frock-coat which he wore, and in which he had that day attended Mr. Ronaldson's funeral, brought out the unusual sallowness of his complexion. There was a withered, yellow look about him to-night, which forcibly recalled his mother. Judith's heart grew very soft as she watched him shaking hands with her aunt and uncle. "'He is not well,' she thought, then. "'He always comes last to me.' But even as this thought flitted across her mind, Reuben was in front of her, holding out his hand. For a moment she stared astonished at the stiff, outstretched arm the downcast, expressionless face, taking in the exaggerated, self-conscious indifference of his whole manner, then, with lightning quickness, put her hand in his. It was as though he had struck her. She looked round, half expecting a general protest against this public insult, saw the quiet, unmoved faces, and understood. She, too, to outward appearance, was quiet and unmoved enough, as she sat there on a primrose-coloured ottoman, bending over a bit of work. But the blood was beating and surging in her ears, and her stiff, cold fingers blundered impotently with needle and thread. Reuben finished his greetings, then sat down near his uncle. He had come, he explained, to say good-bye before going down to St. Baldwin's, for which, as he had expected, he had been asked to stand. There was every chance of his being returned, Mr. Lunninger believed. Well, yes, there was a small radical party down there, certainly, beginning to feel its way, and they had brought forward a candidate, otherwise there would have been no opposition. Sir Nicholas Chemis, who had a place down there, and who was member for the county of which St. Baldwin's was the chief town, had been very kind about it all. Lady Chemis was Lee Harrison's sister. Judith listened, cold as a stone. How could he bear to sit there, drawling out these facts to Israel Lunninger, which in the natural course of things should have been poured forth for her private benefit in delicious confidence and sympathy? Esther, who was spending the evening with her cousins, came and sat beside her. "'You are putting green silk instead of blue into the cornflowers.' she said. Judith lifted her head and met the other's curious, penetrating glance. "'When I was a little girl,' cried Esther, still looking at her, "'a little girl of eight years old, I wrote in my prayer-book, Cursed art thou, O Lord my God, who hast the cruelty to make me a woman. And I have gone on saying that prayer all my life, the only one.' Judith stared at her as she sat there, self-conscious, melodramatic, anxious for effect. She never knew if mere whim or a sudden burst of cruelty had prompted her words. "'According to your own account, Esther,' she said, 
You must have always been a little beast." Esther chuckled. Judith went on sewing, but changed her silks. She wondered if the evening would never end, and yet she did not want Reuben to go. He rose at last and made his farewells. Judith put out her hand carelessly as he approached her, then, drawn by an irresistible magnetism, lifted her eyes to his. As she did so, from Reuben's eyes flashed out a long melancholy glance of passion, of entreaty, of renunciation, and once again even from the depths of her own humiliation arose that strange, yearning sentiment of pity with which this man, who was strong, ruthless, and successful, had such power of inspiring her. Only for a moment did their eyes meet. The next she had turned hers away, had in her turn grown cold and unresponsive. How dared he look at her thus! How dared he profane that holiest of sorrows, the sorrow of those who love, and are by fate separated! End of chapter 14